Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23 says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews, will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, copper utensils, and dining couches. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating bread with ritually unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Disregarding the command of God, you keep the tradition of men. He also said to them, You completely invalidate God's command in order to maintain your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to, get, put to death. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. When he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Then he said, What comes out of a person that defiles him? For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Bless the reading of the word. Let's pray. God, we need to hear from you today. Open our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we would receive your word. Help us not to stand facing you and hearing that we're hypocrites, hearing that we've set your word aside. We want to rightly honor your word this morning and rightly honor you. Help us to do that today and transform us in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a pretty long story, and in the past I've come and done maybe three, four, five, six verses at a time, and I still kept you for 45 minutes, so you know what's in store. Now, I'll, I'll try to go pretty quick, so if you have a pen... Uh, go ahead, and if you don't mind marking in your Bible, we're going to break this into three major sections. Excuse me. And we can call these scenes, 
It's really one long story, but we can kind of break it up into three scenes. And the way we'll do that is the way the story kind of naturally divides itself. It's kind of one long conversation, and each time the crowds change or Jesus' audience change, that's when we're kind of going to see a break, and we'll take that section by section. So verse 1 will be scene 1, so you can put a line there, or S1, or however you need to. Because I think when you go back and read this on your own, it's going to help you see it in, in portions too. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. So that's Jesus and scribes and Pharisees. Not all of them, just a few. And most likely the disciples, since they were traveling with Jesus. And you'll see later on in the story that they were privy to some of the previous conversations. So that's scene one. Then you skip way down to verse 14, and you can write scene two or however you want to do it there. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. So Jesus broadens the conversation right here. And uh, this really happens naturally in our everyday life, you know, at work or school or even running an errand. You end up having a conversation with someone. And uh, whether they initiate it or you initiate it, it's a private conversation. And next thing you know, people are gathered into that. It becomes a little bit bigger. And then you get back home, and you end up debriefing with your kids or with your spouse, even if they were part of it, you know, going into more detail. And that's kind of what goes on here. So this is the biggest. You go from a slightly small conversation to the biggest and then scale back down to the smallest in verse 17. That's the third scene. And uh, that says, when he went into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. So one thing to look out for there, parable does not always mean story. We tend to think of it like that, and you might see that and say, what, I missed the parable. What are they talking about? He just gave a response. Well, parable was a whole collection of types of teachings that rabbis would do. And so sometimes that might be a riddle, a rhyme, a proverb, even a verse. Uh, often Jesus used stories, but they wanted to know the, the deeper meaning behind it. So that's our three big sections. Now let's back up and try to get the big picture of what's going on here because it's a lengthy discussion. It's a lot of words I read in my monotone voice there. So let's break it up into those three groups and then think about what really is going on here. It's a defense. <clears throat> At the end of the day, it's a defense. People are coming, these scribes and Pharisees, and accusing not only the Pharisees, not only Jesus' disciples, but Jesus himself, since it's him that they're following. And Jesus responds to them. What we want to pay attention to as we go through, go through these sections is not only the content of Jesus' response, what he said, that's crucial, but how he said it. You know that saying, that, you know, you've probably heard it in conversations with your spouse, conversations, like, uh, you know, it's not just what you said, it's the way you said it. It's how you said it. We want to pay attention to the way Jesus says it, how he says what he says. It's really important, and it's important for us not to read too much in the text, read our own personality or anything like that, but from what's in the text, pulling out some of those words and really trying to get into the emotion of the story, what the disciples were feeling, what the Pharisees were experiencing, and most importantly, what Jesus was telling them and us. Excuse me. 
So to get in that emotional state, I want to share a story with you. You probably have stories like this of your own. Uh, you know, we've all probably been defended, uh, or you might relate more with the one doing the defending. Um, but since it's Father's Day, I think it's an appropriate time to tell a story about my dad def coming to my defense. And uh, this one's easy to think of because me and my brother were recently talking about it. And we were mentioning how my dad had a kind of a reserved personality. My mom, on the other hand, uh, she, she would set you straight, especially, <laughs> especially if you were messing with her kids. And uh, you know the, that saying, like, mama bear instinct? That, that stereotype is, like, based off of her in real life. And, so, <laughs> and so, so it's not that she was out looking for a fight, but there were eight of us kids. So the scenarios, the opportunities present themselves to defend your kids, whether from bullies or teachers or whoever. Uh, you know, that, that situation tends to happen. But we were remarking, me and my brother, about how my dad also could go there pretty easy. And uh, it, it might take people off guard because of the way he was so kind of quiet. Maybe some might even think passive at first. But he also kind of had that look, you know. <laughs> you don't really want to cross this guy. And uh, so I told... My brother, about a time, I'd, I'd actually forgotten until we were discussing that, that I was in band, and we had band camp that summer. And our parents thought it was crucially important for us to learn work ethic. So if we did extracurricular things like band or sport, we had to use our money from the jobs we worked to pay for that. And I paid for my band fee that year, and I was leaving my job early to go to this band camp during the summer, go to the to the football field in the heat of the day and supposed to be learning these new songs. Well, it was the band director's last year and he did not care. He was phoning it in. He just did not care. He was literally letting students just run it the way they wanted to run. We were doing the same stuff, literally song for song, the exact same show we had done the year before. So music was something I really wanted to do. I thought kind of with my life at that point. And so I, uh, I quit because it wasn't a challenge. Uh, but in the process of quitting, uh, you know, some of the drum majors were saying we had to dance and dance with the instruments. And uh, it was vulgar. And of course, it's disgusting. That's the opposite of class, the opposite of the type of thing you would want to do. And I, I told my dad about it, and he's like, yeah, hang in there, see if you can tough it out. So two or three days after him picking me up, um, I told him, you know, I think this is it. And sure enough, the next day, I had to run laps. If you didn't participate in the, you know, everybody do it uniformly together. And I was, I'm not, gonna, I'm not about to do that. I'm not about to dance dirty with the instrument. I'm barely going to dance in the first place. And, <laughs> and so I, I decided to quit. And the band director told me, he was like, hey, uh, you're going to either have to get on board or or quit, and I was like, yeah, you're right, I'm, I'm quitting. And so I went over across the street back to the band hall and waited, and he gave me, when they came in, he gave me several reasons why I wouldn't get a refund, all these different excuses about how it had already been paid, he has no way to get it, all this stuff. So when Dad picked me up, he was like, well, how'd it go, you know? And I said, well, I quit. 
we get down the road a little bit, and I started describing the money situation to him, and he was like, okay. So he turned the truck back around, <laughs> and he went inside, and I don't know, because, you know, memories get foggy and stuff, but it, it seemed like it was maybe under a minute that he came right back out, <laughs> and he had cash in his hand, you know, <laughs> and putting it in his pocket here, and he sat in the truck, and as we left, he, you know, reached over and handed it to me, and uh, told me he was proud, and I don't think he told me to stay inside. I, I'm not even sure if I was aware of what was really going on in the minute, but I thought to myself, man, I would hate to be that guy right now, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, just think about how squirmy he must have felt, you know, facing my dad, and given of how, how quick it was, even if it was a little longer, the conversation couldn't have been that long. And uh, I think it's because my dad's presence and posture did most of the talking. And I think as we look at this, whether you can relate with the father in that scenario or you're a grandparent who's been having to defend their kids, hopefully not against their, your kids, <laughs> but whether, whether you're defending or have, like for me, my kids are still pretty young. I relate more with, you know, myself in that story. Uh, but regardless of who you kind of relate to, that's what this story is like. That's the emotion that must have been going on for the Pharisees. I mean, excuse me, for the disciples. And if you'll think back to like chapter 4 where Jesus is in the boat with them and he talks to them like, are you dull? Are you not catching on to this? you got to remember this is like a father to his children. Remember when he defends his uh, disciples to the Pharisees at a different time when they're picking grain in the, in the fields and, you know, what are you doing here? And, and a lot of this stuff centered around Sabbath, but Jesus was defending them. Not only his word, his self, his plan, but his disciples. And so... I want us to imagine, um, even if you don't have, didn't have a father, if you can't relate to that story, think about what that must be like to have a heavenly father, to have a, the God who created everything come down and not just be your leader or your rabbi or your good teacher, but your heavenly father in flesh and showing you how to be the perfect son, the perfect follower. Let's look at uh, this first section. This kind of sets it up. Uh, that the, the conversation can get into the weeds really deep, so I try not to go there with you. But I do want to recommend a few things along the way that will help us keep up. And actually, it will help us in the rest of Mark, too. Some translations have parentheses at verse 3, uh, verse 11. And again at verse 19. How many of your translations have parentheses? Okay, just a few. Well, those parentheses are to set aside so you can see that Mark is like acting as a narrator and interjecting into the story. And he's helping that first audience that would have got this, this gospel keep up with things that maybe the Jewish world would understand, but not necessarily everyone else. And it's helpful for us because we're even more far removed now. So he turns aside in verse 3 and says, For the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not eat unless they wash their hands ritually, 
keeping the traditions of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed, and there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, jugs, uh, copper utensils, and dining couches. And you might think, wow, one of these things does not belong, dining couches. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, they actually ate on a table that was quite low and rested on one arm. Um, and so he's kind of catching us up on why this is even a controversy in the first place, why they're even paying attention. And then again down here in verse 11, that is a gift committed to the temple. He's explaining Corbin because it, he doesn't actually translate it. And then again, English translators don't translate it either. And, uh, you know, it's just helpful things like that that Mark does to help us get into uh, the story even deeper. And then again, verse 19, for it does not go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Uh, as, yeah, as a result, he made all foods clean. So this is the most tricky one, really. Uh, yeah, he's, he's bringing us in on, uh, first Jesus' teaching, but he's bringing us in on the end result of Jesus' teaching. It said he made all foods clean. Now, we read that as Gentiles and as New Testament believers and think that he did away with the kosher laws. But this is one of those things that's a little more nuanced than you might first hear. So as we're going through these sections, turn off your Sunday school cap. And by that, I mean, like, because you've heard it so many times, want to jump to kind of the conclusion and know it where, where it ends. Hear it as, like, with fresh ears as if hearing it for the first time, like it says here, if anyone has ears, he should listen. The, the food laws uh, weren't really what this argument was about. It was really about the washing of hands. And y'all might be familiar with this controversy uh, given that we live in this COVID era. About this time last year, people were talking about the CDC says, wash your hands every 15 seconds for 45 minutes at a time and sing a song or something, something along those lines. And, but this is not about hygiene at all. This is ritual cleansing. And it goes back to what we talked about a little bit when we talked about the leper, Jesus meaning the leper, because they're concerned with ritual impurities. And what they're concerned with is actually just for priests, chief priests, the ones that would go and do the work in the temple. Um, and Pharisees weren't actually meant to, to hold that, nor were the rest of the Jews. But the Pharisees wanted so dearly to hold on to those traditions, to hold on to the Word of God, actually, that it became something that they kind of impose on all people. If you'll notice in that first one, it says, as do all the Jews. Um, let's see. Yeah. For, for the Pharisees, in fact, all the Jews will not un eat unless they wash their hands ritually, keeping the tradition of the elders. So it had gone from this thing that God prescribed for these few people to do that would serve him and would serve as a mediator between him and the people to uh, something that they were kind of demanding the whole culture hold to. And then it was going even beyond that and taking it a step further. Now, if you hear a Pharisee and think, you know, oh gosh, that's the evil 
you know, that's the evil crowd, and as soon as they come into a store, you know, uh, Jesus doesn't put them in their place. That's, that's pretty much true. <laughs> but withhold your judgment a little bit, because they were actually doing what they thought was best. And they were really trying to preserve their way of life, not just because it was a way of life, but because God Almighty had given it to them. What they missed in this situation was replacing God's word with their own traditions. So it was actually never commanded, not, not only to that group, but it was actually never commanded to eat before, uh, to, to ritually wash your hands before every meal. It was only before certain meals and in the temple. So Jesus did make all foods clean at some point, but it's not exactly clear that he was doing that here. It's more likely that Jesus was saying all foods, all kosher foods, are okay to eat without the, the ritual cleansing of your hands. And if you go to Matthew's account, Luke's account, you'll see, most people think that Mark's was written first, but you'll see that they both kind of leave this part out, that Jesus made all foods clean. And if you'll remember, Mark is writing based on Peter's narration. Peter's the one who, in Acts chapter 10, had the dream. Remember the dream? You can eat bacon, it's all good. <laughs> Don't call anything I, I've made unclean. So it's likely that Jesus actually didn't do away with the kosher laws here, but over time did that. And then we see again Peter with that same trouble in Galatians chapter 2 or 3, where Paul confronts him. But at that time he had already begun doing it and then was acting hypocritically, you know, eating until the Jews came around and he'd stop eating pork. And so that, that's why it's a little more nuanced. Um, and regardless of whether Jesus was doing away with all the kosher laws then or later, uh, we know that the purpose of the kosher laws was for the people to be set aside unto God. And actually, some of these laws were for, for their protection. Uh, they didn't know about hygiene. The problem with washing the hands was not about, you know, whether or not they would get COVID or what, whether they would be eating clean food. It was about having gone to the marketplace and coming back and potentially having touched something that touched a corpse or something that uh, a, even a dead animal or someone who maybe had been bloody or had some other sort of discharge and potentially could defile them uh, ritually. So they were concerned with ritual impurity and God was or Jesus was concerned with moral impurity, which is something that they were concerned with too. But Jesus shows them how they're focused on the way the Pharisees, I mean, on the, excuse me, on the way the disciples are living, and they really should be focused on the way they're living. And they even say, and, uh, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? This is a pattern of behavior they've observed. They don't wash like we do when they come back. And this washing, the Greek actually says uh, something along the lines of the knuckles, so like washing with the fists, like a very, very ritualistic thing. It wasn't about getting clean at all. It was about being clean before the Father. And so in here we can kind of see already, as, as Mark's setting it up, that 
we're all in need of cleansing. And we all know that deep down. And, and you can write that somewhere there if you want to, but we all know deep down we're cleansing, we're filthy, something needs to be done about the sin problem. And you hear people nowadays, especially people my age, I've had lots of conversations with people arguing about substitutionary atonement, penal substitutionary atonement, and saying that it's a theory, you know. And uh, regardless of how your arguments make you feel, whether it's like, you know, fuzzy, or even if you haven't articulated this, but you really think you know better than God, and you have a better design than him, um, you're wrong. <laughs> you're still wrong at the end of the day. And this, it's a universal thing, this need for cleansing. And I, you know, I haven't been all around, but the few places I've been on the other side of the world. You know, I sit with older couples, families of all ages, and as they're hearing the stories of Jesus for the first time, and you get to the part in the garden about God making a way by killing an animal, they go, oh, that's what, that's what happens. Because they all have this concept of sacrifice. Blood has to be set, shed. A, a payment has to be made on my behalf. There's something wrong. Well, then you get all the way to the end of, like, Jesus, that God, that same God who created and made a way, makes the ultimate way, pays the ultimate cost, and does away with that whole sacrificial system. And that's what sparks the most conversation. You see eyebrows get big. You, you see them realize, like, wow, our, our system has that too. Our religion has that too, but it doesn't resolve anything. This God came down to be a human to take, to take away my sins, to, to make me pure before him. And so we talk about propitiation a lot of times, how God, uh, Jesus, at the cross, uh, took our punishment. And that's true. But there's also the fact that he cleanses us. You know, John says uh, he's faithful uh, to save us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to forgive us. That's what we're dealing with here. And it's a universal thing. You, even if you learn a little bit about other religions, they have this issue of sin. What do we do about sin? We're all in need of cleansing. And what they're crying for is a savior. They need a savior. So Jesus responds, and the first thing we notice is, verse 6, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written. Hypocrites is a pretty strong word, and that's the first tone we want to pay attention to. Jesus is both condemning here and harsh and direct. He's straightforward with them. You're hypocrites. But another thing we need to pay attention to is the content. He goes straight to Isaiah or Isaiah. Let's turn there. Isaiah 29, verse 13. And uh, when you get a chance, man, this is a, a beautiful chapter. If you listen to the whole thing, um, you know, it, it really gives a lot of background that these Pharisees and the disciples would have known, especially the Pharisees and scribes who actually spent hours and hours copying down the words of Isaiah. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. So Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord said, Because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, 
and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise men will vanish, and the understanding of their perceptive will be hidden. And we could really go to the end of that chapter. It's, it's a lot of reading. But you'll see here that this is right before a pronouncement of woe, of judgment coming on these people. The, another time Jesus quoted from Isaiah when he was in the temple, and he said, before you, to, today in your presence, right before you this is happening. And again, Jesus is saying that here. Isaiah has a lot of messianic prophecies, uh, you know, saying Jesus is the one who's coming. And Jesus often quotes from him. But here you see the problem is not just that they replace God's word. That, that's a big deal. And, but that they're giving them lip service and not their heart. So Jesus' presence is important because he's the promised one to come. Uh, but his posture towards them is direct, like a father's would be. He's saying, you're being hypocritical. You're actually opting for rules that you establish over a heart-to-heart -heart relationship that I want with you. John Piper sums this, this chapter up by saying that worship is an end in itself. It's a means in itself. It's not a means to an end. It's the end itself. In other words, our whole life is meant for this, to enjoy and worship God forever. There's, no, there's nothing on the backside of that. Yes, we get to recruit others, evangelize, call others into the family, but the end goal is to be with, to commune with, to love and enjoy God as our Father. So the issue Jesus is concerned with is not ritual impurity or moral impurity only. What he's really getting at is the heart. He wants worship. And he wants it to be pure worship. Now you might think, you know, we don't really do that. We don't really play games with God. We don't give him lip service. Uh, but I encourage you today to ask the Spirit to search your heart and to convict you of ways that you might play games with God, that you might have, even if we give this, the scribes and the Pharisees a little credit, we might have even, <clears throat> excuse me, let stuff build out of our understanding of the scriptures, innocently asking stuff like, what does it mean to, to follow the Sabbath? That's a natural thing to ask. How can I best obey God? Well, eventually those things can end up growing so big that they become the object of our worship instead of the vehicle of our worship. And sometimes we think, you know, well, it's that other crowd that's caught up in tradition, you know, and you, you have all these false dichotomies between people who say, you know, we don't have a, a liturgy or we don't have an order of service. We just come in and, and let the spirit move. And well, not really. You have a routine, you have a pattern and most people know what to expect and what to do and how to follow that. But, and then on the other hand, you say, well, I don't want to be a part of that dead church. They, you know, somebody needs to tell their face that they've been saved. They're so unhappy and they're just so ritualistic and all this. And you see both of those sides are not really looking inward and saying, how am I guilty of replacing 
God's word with my own traditions? What, what, is, what is it I'm guilty of? What would Jesus face me and say, you're hypocrites, just like Isaiah said you would be, and here's why? Which is what we come to next. And notice Jesus is the first expositional preacher. He goes straight like, he calls them hypocrites, but then he goes immediately to Isaiah. And not just backs it up, but uses that as what he's going to speak from. And he expounds from there to Moses. He's not just going off on his own. He's telling them the things that they, they already know, the scriptures. So he's telling them those things. He's reminding them, just like hopefully some of us are doing each week when we open God's word and say, you know this to be true. Let this be a reminder. So verse 10, he says, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father and mother must be put to death. It's not the kind of punishments we have <laughs> around our house. It's like, one, two, when I get to 30, you're getting in trouble. Uh, but, you know, fathers and mothers, like that today, again, is Father's Day, so we love that. Of the Ten Commandments, that's probably parents like number one thing you know and the Jewish culture was big on honor and shame and and a collective identity kind of like in East Asia where they're so connected with the family that you your your last name your family name is what you go by first it's the family name and then the first name and it, it was a very similar identity in in the Jewish world it was more about who you belong to and belong with than what you could kind of do as an individual on your own. Not making a name for yourself, but upholding that name that's been made through the centuries. And I think we can kind of relate with that a little bit. And, you know, up here, we're not too, too big city. <laughs> we, kind of, we kind of stay connected to family. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we have this concept of this honor and shame at least a little And so Jesus is presenting them with something that they're blind to <clears throat> and showing them how they even culturally, they're doing something really terrible when they let people play games with God by saying, if your father or mother needs financial aid, well, just tell them it's a gift to the temple and that, you know, I would help, but see, this is, this is God's. And one of the things we, I, I haven't seen that I don't think any commentators, which I hadn't read every, every one of them, but I haven't seen many people point this out, but Jesus is also talking about their stinginess because much like today, your tithes go to people, workers, gospel workers. Um, sure, they go to building expenses and stuff like that too, but they go to people who spread the gospel. And the scribes, the chief priests, the elders got that temple tax. They got that money. And so it was in their benefit. They benefited monetarily to tell people, yeah, do your family that way. So Jesus is like letting them know on several different levels how sick this really is. And even before that, he says, you also said to them, you completely invalidate God's commands in order to maintain your tradition. That word completely, some translations say neatly or conveniently. And it's sarcastic. That's the tone we got to look at here. Jesus is saying, you know, you, you package it up perfectly. Like, 
I, I see that commandment of God. I don't really like it, so I'm going to put it over here. I'm going to put this rule right in its place. And so this one is less deceptive than what we were talking about a while ago, where things just kind of innocently grow up. A tradition ends up becoming this big, huge thing that gets in the way of Jesus, our relationship with him. So Jesus' tones are, are changing as his content changes. But then he goes on to expound that second one, Moses. He says, but you say, if a man tells his father and mother whatever benefit you might have received from me as Corbin, that is a gift committed to the temple, you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. You revoke God's word by your tradition you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Here we should notice how merciful and loving he is. Because, yes, he's been condemning them, showing them where they're wrong. And, by the way, that's a grace. When the Spirit of God convicts you, that's grace. Because he's calling you to repentance instead of giving you what you deserve. And here he's saying, you do many other similar things. In other words, I could go on. I could, I could go through the rule books that you love so much and go, you know, from Exodus to Numbers and show where you fall short of these systems. But I'm going to stop right here and just show you that you've been a hypocrite in this way. And then Jesus gathers people around. This becomes a teaching moment. It says, summoning the crowd again, he told them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And that's, that's actually part of the parable. So he breaks it down into this like one easy, pithy saying, and it says, you know, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And in Hebrew, it's actually what goes inside the man cannot defile him, but what's inside the man that goes inside of the latrine, the toilet. And all, all the English translations clean it up a little bit, but it's inside and inside so that they can remember that couplet, that phrase. And Jesus is kind of taking away the, the mystery and saying food is not important. It's the moral things in here that matter. And because we're here, we need to deal with this verse 16. Some of your Bibles might not have it at all. Uh, this is, you know, some people call it the disappearing verse. If anyone has he ears to hear, he should listen. And the reason that's not in some of your translations is that older, uh, older original manuscripts actually don't include it there. So given the quantity, the amount of manuscripts that are older, that are closer to the time Mark wrote it, uh, not including it, it, it made scholars believe that maybe a scribe added this later on. And maybe so, but Jesus did often say, if anyone has ears to hear, he should listen. And so what, if a scribe did do that, what he was underscoring was, what Jesus just said, you need to listen. What's coming up next is even more important. So Jesus, again, you know, he's, he's been harsh with them, condemning. Uh, he's even, and, and by the way, Jesus can be condemning. You know, we're like, I don't like that. Let's say convicting. But actually, Jesus can condemn, and one day he will. He'll condemn those to eternal conscious torment, to punishment, eternally. And 
On the other hand, he will save those he's called to, and those who have a relationship with him. Uh, Jesus condemns them for what, where they're wrong. He has mercy on them by not continuing to list everything. And then we notice they don't have a response. Even after he calls everyone together and says, hey, look, I'm going to break it down for you all real quick. The whole argument boils down to this. It's the direction of impurity that matters. It's not when it's coming in here, it can corrupt you some kind of way spiritually. That's physical stuff. It's going to be eliminated. But it's what comes out of here, out of that heart, that reveals the filth that's already there, that reveals that need for a Savior, a need for cleansing. And they don't have a response. Mark just drops them all together. He quits talking about them. And we should pay attention to that like a response because, you know, again, they knew what Isaiah said. They knew what Jesus was claiming. I'm that one. I'm the promised one. And I'm telling you that you've missed it. You've missed the mark. And not only that, you don't have a high view of God because you don't see me as God, the Christ. But you also don't have a high view of Scripture, which the two go hand in hand because you actually replace Scripture. Whether you meant to or not, you're doing it. And in a lot of cases, we see they did actually mean to. And again, how are we going to respond? Is there going to be a lack of response on our end when Jesus confronts us with our sins and shows us where we've replaced his word with our own tradition? Will we walk off with hanged heads and saddened? Or will we ask him, will we pursue a little further like the disciples did when they got in private? Picking up in the last scene here, it says, verse 17, when he went back into the house away from the crowd, the disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also as lacking in understanding? Do you realize that nothing going into a man from the outside can defile him? Just repeating it again, like just confirming. You don't get the ultimate teaching, right? And then it goes from that principle, for it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. As a result, he made all foods clean. Then he said, what comes out of a person that defiles him, for from within, out of people's hearts. And this is the list he could have gave them, what they're guilty of. It's 13 or 14 things, depending on how you count some of them as categories. And these are whole types of sins. So he's not even enumerating that. He could go in even... The, to even greater detail, for from within, out of the people's hearts comes evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greeds. We don't have a way to make it plural, but it's actually plural. Greeds, different types of greedinesses, uh, evil actions, deceit, and then it gets singular again. Deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. He could have gave that laundry list to the, to the ones who are guilty. Maybe he didn't want to waste his words there, but I, th- I think he was having mercy on them. But he also explains it in greater detail to the disciples so that they can know. I'm fixing to be gone. In a few chapters, Jesus is going to do something pretty amazing. He's going to take away the filth of everyone who has a relationship with him, of everyone who sees the sacrifice that he made, and who don't stand opposed to him or opposed to his followers, but actually are repentant and say, Father, I need a cleansing. I need your forgiveness. 
And when Jesus deals with this ultimately and finally, he's going to take all these things away, this big, long laundry list away. And he's going to cleanse the heart from within. The heart is the thing that worships God. When we give our hearts to God, we, he, he's the object of our worship. He's the driving thought process in our mind. It's his words that we learn to live by. Jesus lived by the word of God so thoroughly. Even when he went to the cross in his last words, he's quoting scripture. When he's faced with accusations and his disciples are faced with accusation, he quotes scripture. It's, it's the language that he speaks. It's the Bible. We need to get to that place. We need to get to that place because we've all been the disciples before, not understanding even after we read God's word and we've received his grace and still dole of understanding. And we've needed him to explain it in greater detail to us, show us exactly what he's talking about, remove all the mystery. And we've also been that larger crowd that, you know, maybe we weren't following Jesus, but he said, gather around, come here, listen to this. This, this is what I'd like to teach you. I want your heart. I don't want those rules. I want your heart. And we've, I think we've also been the Pharisee at some point and observing other people's life, word, meddling in their worship, their relationship with God in a negative way and even accusing his followers but also accusing him, thinking we know better than God and replacing his word with our own traditions, or not even ours, but those that have been handed down. So the question really isn't, who do we relate with? Because I think we've been relating with, with all these. The thing is, how do you relate in, in relation to God, in relation to Jesus when you see him face to face? What will his response be? There's not really a back and forth here with the Pharisees because they didn't have anything to say. The crowd hears it. We can assume maybe they went away. Some change. We don't know. But the disciples continue to struggle with it. And we need to do the same thing. We need to, unlike the Pharisees, stand and recognize Jesus and his glory and his power, that this is the Son of God speaking the word of God. And we need to live lives full of worship. And we'll do that when we fall in love with him. When we actually recognize who we're standing in front of, we'll worship God. Our lives will be full of worship. And uh, it doesn't mean we won't fall short again. But it does mean that we won't end up worshiping traditions. And we'll hear when he says, over here, over here, I want your heart. I'm right here in front of you. I want your heart. I don't want that junk. I don't want your, you know, Dawn detergent and your washing hands and all that stuff. I want you. I want full devotion from you. So I encourage you today, if you don't know him, struggle like the Pharisees. Ask him, what does it mean, God? I still don't, I don't really grasp it. Or if you're like one of the crowd, he's inviting you today. He's calling you to listen to his words. He wants your heart. And it belongs to him. He's made you for this. When you begin to worship him, it's insane. It feels like you were dead all along. 
and your heart inside of you just wants to jump up for joy. And you actually could just be with him at any time. And you can be. You can be today.